I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. From the drama album, that is the music of Yes, which features my guest today on the program, Jeff Downs. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeff Downs. Now, before we begin, I should tell you that the most recent face I've seen on MTV is the face of Shawn Mendes. I saw it about nine minutes ago, and as you know, I follow the career of Shawn Mendes very closely, so it was quite a thrill. Handsome lad. The first face I ever saw on MTV was in 1981, and it was the face of Jeff Downs. He was in a band called The Buggles. The video was called Video Killed the Radio Star. It was the first video MTV ever played, and though I was just 11 years old, that moment was seismic for me. I watched it forensically. Now, that was a memorable video. The second video MTV ever played may have been by the Marshall Tucker Band. Not as memorable. But let's get back to the Buggles. Video Killed the Radio Star certainly heralded a new age and a new medium, and music changed and would never be the same. And I loved the song. It was catchy, it was futuristic, it was totally cool. But it was Jeff Downs' work a year later with a band called Asia that really rang my bell. The song in question was called Heat of the Moment, and I didn't know Asia was a super group at the time. I mean, I thought they were a super group. I didn't know they were a super group. More on that in a second. I was watching Jeff Downs behind the keyboard, and I was thinking to myself as a young 12-year-old, that guy knows stuff about the world. With his blonde hair hanging over his eyes, Jeff Downs was behind that keyboard, and he was in the pocket. He seemed like a guy who knew things about the world. And he did. That whole band seemed to know things about the world. John Wetton was the wise one. Carl Palmer, the athletic one. Steve Howe, the professor. And Jeff Downs, the cool guy in the back, taking it all in and holding it all down. Now, my knowledge of Jeff Downs may have begun in 1981, but the guy had been around for a while before that. So let me catch you up. Remember how I said it looked like Jeff Downs knew things about the world? Well, I was right. He did. And what he knew about more than anything else in the world were the keyboards. And that was no accident. The Cheshire-born Downs grew up, I suppose you might say, between the keys. His dad was a church organist and his mom was a pianist. In the same way, it would make perfect sense to do the exact opposite of your parents. It also makes sense to do the identical thing. And Downs fell into the latter category. As a burgeoning adult, he graduated from the Leeds College of Music 
moved to London and became a session player and jingle writer for local advertisements. Downs played in the band She's French, then he played keyboards for the theater production of The Wombles, which was a popular stop-motion animation series about burrowing creatures in Wimbledon who preached the importance of recycling. Probably not the best way to meet girls, but don't worry about Jeff Downs. He did just fine. More on that in a second. Okay, so you're probably thinking you might not meet girls playing in a Wombles theater band, but once that production was over, Downs met Trevor Horn, and in 1979, they formed the Buggles. The name of that band sounds a bit like the Wombles, I know, but trust me, they weren't. The new wave band's Video Killed the Radio Star not only went number one in Australia and Italy, it was Island Records' first number one in the UK, which is quite an achievement considering the label also had Bob Marley and Steve Winwood on their roster. The Buggles put out two records back-to-back, The Age of Plastic and Adventures in Modern Recording. And not only was Video Killed the Radio Star the first video on MTV, it was played in constant rotation. That'll help you meet girls. Don't believe me? Well, at one point, Downs was married to Miss Norway. So, as I said, he did just fine. So, for all you aspiring musicians out there, remember this. You might start playing in a theater production of The Wombles, but you'll end up marrying Miss Norway. I'm just saying. Now, Horn and Downs played on Yes's drama album, and they toured with the band, and then Downs formed Asia with John Wetton of King Crimson, Carl Palmer from Emerson Lake and Palmer, and Yes's Steve Howe. Now that's a supergroup. Asia's debut hit number one in the U.S. for nine weeks, and the rest, as they say, is history. And Jeff Downs' history is so vast, it would exhaust your goodwill as a listener if I went through his entire CV. So... Here are some highlights. Aside from his work with Asia, Yes, and The Buggles, as if that wasn't enough, Downs has put out a series of fabulous solo albums, worked with Kate Bush, Greg Lake, and Deep Purple's Glenn Hughes, and he's produced everyone from the Thompson Twins to Mike Oldfield. And in 2012, he became the full-time keyboard player with Yes, playing on their Heaven and Earth album. Downs is currently on the road with Yes, finishing up their Royal Affair tour, which ends in Saratoga at the Mountain Winery here in California on July 28th, and the band's documentary, Yes 50, Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, will be out August 2nd. I was very excited to talk to Jeff Downs. This is a really cool conversation. He's a really cool guy. Enjoy the chat right here with me and Jeff Downs on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Look, Jeff, I I grew up in the 80s, and, you know, the keyboard was a popular component of of popular music at the time. Um, But where is it now? Where, how would you define, you know, how it fits into popular music of today? Well, it's an interesting uh, point, Matt, because I think that, uh, you know, I think when the 90s came around, keyboards kind of took a bit of a backseat again, because the... uh, you know, the big sort of the big hair bands and the rock bands were all very guitar driven. And uh, I think, in, you know, in recent times it, it's, it's come back again because it's a very um, integral part of, uh, uh, of music today, I think. And, um, uh, you know, particularly in the production, I think the people has come forward and, and really taken a, uh, taken a role in the modern record production. And I think that that's part of the. Uh, is it is it one of those things where I know they were they were sort of mourning the decline of the guitar solo in the '90s as well? Is it one of those things where it's cyclical, like it'll always it's it'll always swing back around? Yeah, I think it's always going to be there. I think that um, you know a lot of a lot of dance music uh, used very high profile or still does, you know, high profile use of uh, synthesizers, particularly um, you know older analog synthesizers. So. Um, uh, I think the, probably the difference is that there were actually um, prominent performers in the, in the 70s and 80s on, on keyboards, and I don't think that's so much um, 
uh, a case these days. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, Taylor Swift will sit down and play a piano and a couple of songs, but that's really it. You know, the focus on the performance, I think. As I say, I think it, that's why I'm saying that it swung more towards uh, being a producer's tool rather than, uh, you know, a performance tool. The way that it was used in the 80s was, you know, it, suddenly it was a big part of pop music, which, you know, was not a new thing. But the way it was being used was, I mean, people like Thomas Dolby, were, were you fascinated by what other people were doing with the instrument, even though you weren't doing maybe the exact same thing? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I'd been doing it before with the bubbles. You know, I think that we were pretty, we were pretty ahead of the game in terms of the techno pop uh, movement because... Bubbles was very, very keyboard-driven, um, yeah, especially on the whole orchestration. Uh, I was using the keyboard to create that. And uh, and I think so, uh, the other band that came through afterwards, you know, like the Pet Shop Boys, Duran Duran, uh, Tom Starby, people like that, Howard Jones, um, they sort of, not borrowed from us, but I think they were part of the, the, the latter part of that movement. Yeah, and whether it was Nick Rhodes or Thomas Dolby, I mean, the 80s had some pretty good players. Well, they were all good players, I think. Um, you know, they, they were very good at getting the sounds and, and, and creating these um, these sort of lead melodies on the, uh, on the keyboard instruments themselves. So uh, it, it was uh, it's a sort of fascinating history of how the instrument uh, developed. You know, I think when, when the World War II, synthesizers were developed around that time uh, because I think when you look at the you know you, you look at the 70s and, and a lot of the instruments using what like the progressive rock bands with things like um, uh, Mellotrons and Hammond organs and MIDI modes and, uh, uh, and acoustic pianos and the roads that kind of thing um, they were very much the the the, uh, the state-of-the-art uh, keyboard instruments at the time. But I think uh, as the 80s turned, there was a, a huge technological development in keyboards and, um, uh, and, of course, sampling and that kind of thing has started to come through as well. Did you, when you first really got into the instrument, did you feel a kind of limitlessness with what you can do? And, and do you also still feel that way? Yeah, I mean, I always... I always saw myself more of a, an orchestrator than the keyboard player in some respects because, you know, I was always trying to get more out of every instrument, getting you know deeper and deeper into the sound side of it, and the you know the the soundscaping and the creation of, of new things. And I think that for me that was a, it was a very exciting time to be around then, and, uh, and I was always challenging, you know, what we could get out of these these instruments, even. Even you know before the eighties, around about the late seventies, I was experimenting with uh, the old string machines and you know trying to make orchestral sounds and multi-layering and stuff. And that's always an area that really has has fascinated me. And I think that um, you know it's sort of like being a one-man orchestra, really. My theory about you, which is which is nothing more than a hunch based on your body of work, is that you are an incredibly disciplined practitioner of, of, of your work. Is, is that true? Have you always felt that you were a very disciplined guy? Um, yeah, I've, I've got a, I a method and I like to, um, I always think I knew when, you know, when I've got it right and when I hadn't. And I think that that's the, was always the big challenge for me personally was, was to uh, push myself until I was satisfied with what I, Created, and I think that um, you know, I was helped with the people I was working with. You know, something like Trevor Horn. He's also an extremely disciplined um, uh, guy, but more more to do with the actual record production side. So we put the two elements together. We had a very, um, you know, we had a very powerful union there. I think um, you know, it, it proved over time that Trevor. When we eventually took, you know, went our different ways, it was, you know, Trevor took the rapple production route and I took the keyboard playing route. So, um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think when when you put that stuff together and you get the right chemistry, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's got 
the big channels have been successful. Yeah, I imagine also that it's probably easier to play with people who are as disciplined, if not more disciplined, than you. Yeah, and I think joining Yes was a real big eye-opener because they were all extremely disciplined um, in their own fields. Certainly, um, Steve is very meticulous in, you know, his solo guitar playing, and uh, you know, and, and Chris Warren, Alan White with the sort of dream rhythm section where they, um, you know, they, they were almost, um, you know, almost machine. You know, the way that they played together, and uh, and so that again was, you know, I was, I was fortunate that. Um, getting involved with them, I, I saw, you know, I, I had even a, a bigger vision of, of, of keyboards being in a, in a performance role as well. So, um, you know, I think I've been fortunate that, you know, I have to met surrounded by people largely who have the same vision, the same vision for perfection. Were you ever... Uh... Were you ever finding yourself intimidated to play alongside certain musicians, or did you always feel I can I can hold my own here? Um, well, I think when I first joined Yes, it was um, it was pretty intimidating uh, because you know they're one of the biggest bands in the world, or certainly had been in the seventies, and uh, uh, it was um, it was a big challenge. But I think that you know I wasn't shy of the challenge, and I, I rose up to it. And I think that. Um, you know, I'm still, still working on that today. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting idea. I I talked to uh, Steve Hackett a couple of months ago, and, and that guy is, yep. you know, every day he's focusing on composition and he's working on stuff. And I, and I talked to Tony Kay, and, and Tony Kay's not. <laughs> he just told me he just, he'll, yeah. he'll rehearse and, and that's it. So, and I, and I understand, Jeff, I understand both perspectives. I get it. Where are you in terms of the way you work on your craft? Are you still as ardently uh, devoted to it? I mean, are, you, are you practicing? Are you always sort of searching around for new ideas? You know, I, I don't really practice that much. I find that, um, you know, I've probably got enough technique to get by, if you, if you like. Um, <laughs> so it's more searching for new things. And I think that that's really um, experimentation with sound still, you know, I still like to dig for those, um, you know, unworldly sounds that, that haven't been around before. And so, um, when I'm tinkering around in my studio, that's really when the, you know, the, the, the moments of inspiration come in. And, and, uh, uh, and that's really largely what I do. I mean, when you're on the road, there isn't really time to do any practicing anyway because you're traveling all the time and, um, uh, uh, I suppose you could say that that keeps you focused and keeps your your, your technique up to a level because if you're playing every night then you are effectively practicing so um, but well, you know when I'm off the road and whatever I, I'll really focus my energies on uh, on creation and trying to do stuff new and, um, and trying to stay at the, the, the cutting edge of uh, technology. How do you know if an idea is worth following? I mean, how sometimes ideas can lead you into dark corners you can't get out of. Have you gotten better at, at not chasing things that won't be fruitful? Um, I think a lot of it helps when you're actually writing with somebody else or you're working with somebody else um, and you, you won't get a good vibe from the other person who you trust and know um, whether an idea's got any legs or not. But I think ultimately, you know, you do have, I certainly have my own refinement process and think, you know, that, that, that that's not going to go anywhere. You know, and I think that, yeah, you think that's not going to go anywhere. And, uh, uh, but what I do is I, I, that's my particular uh, refinement process. And then, you know, when I have a, a core of ideas that I think are strong, then I'll put those for whatever project I'm going to be working on or whatever band I'm in, uh, that I think, you know, these are appropriate ideas for, for that particular uh, project or band. So editorially, is it, I don't want to say dangerous, because that probably sounds too serious, but is it sort of risky to work by yourself? You create your own echo chamber? Um, it can be. I think it can send you up a, a different road. And I think that um, certainly in my case, 
uh, when I've done solo work, it, it's hard to be that um, honest because you might you might like something that you know um, somebody else wouldn't if you if you worked on it with, with another person. But it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of an awkward route, you know. Like I admire people like Mike Oldfield um, or, or someone like that who effectively is just you know creating the entity on his own and uh you know i think that for that he, he does very well and, and and by the way how are you in terms of if you've worked on something by yourself and you think oh this is cool and then you bring it say to somebody like in the past trevor or or john wetton and they would go ah, i don't know about this thing w- would that give you an illuminating insight that you hadn't had before were you pretty good at receiving those kinds of notes oh yeah yeah i think that's um you know, once once you've got the once you've got the the, the nod of um, uh, that it wasn't really going to be for them, then you kind of discard the idea. I, th- I think you've not got to be um, you haven't got to be too precious about your work. That's the thing is that um, uh, you know, once an idea is not really going to fly, then you just you just got to let it go and uh, and not really return to it. I think that uh, you know that, that that would be a mistake in my mind. What is the way that you uh, position yourself to try new things? What's what's on your mind lately? Um, well, uh, you know, there's been such a huge development in uh, uh, in, in computer um, synthesis. Uh, certainly, with a lot of plugins, a lot of emulators, emulations, uh, both synths and that kind of thing. So it's a, a very very vast area to. Uh, uh, to, to to go through, and so it's a little bit of a minefield. I try and uh, uh, and view it whereby it's you know you just got to grab from it what you know what you personally think is going to help you, and and uh, uh, so yes, it's a difficult you know it can be a difficult road, but part of it is quite um, therapeutic. I do you know I do a lot of updating of programs and computers and things like that, and, and I, I kind of enjoy that technical side of it as well as, as the artistic side. Have you embraced, I mean, all of it? I mean, I can't say all, there's too much of it, but have you, are you pretty open to pretty much all of the new advancements? Are you always curious to check them out? Yeah, I am. I, I'm a bit of a geek on the side. You know, certainly I, I, I like, I like to, uh, to be abreast of the, of the latest stuff. And I always go to the NAMM show every year, which is the big, music fair and see what's about you know it, it's it seems that there was a huge explosion probably about 10 years ago where um you know that a lot of companies started making these um you know what they call them when the synthesizer plugins for uh for computers and that there was a huge burst of energy around that time and and since then there's really been it's been more of the same but you know refining the process um Creating more uh, bigger libraries and more uh, more soundscapes, that sort of thing. So it's um, it's a, a, an interesting way that it's just sort of te- it teases forward now rather than explodes. And with all the technology, I mean, I, I would imagine there's again to use the word limitless. I would imagine the live possibilities are uh, insanely vast. Um, but how does the music retain an organic feel, of, you know, amidst all that technology now? Because there's more now than ever. Yeah, well, I, I, it is very useful for live because um, the re- recreation of the sounds is is instant, and uh, and so you know you can store those patches. And in the old days, you, you really had to struggle to recreate stuff that you've done in the studio because. You didn't have the memory on the instruments like like you did now, where you've got uh, infinite patch storage and of sounds that you've created in the studio, and you, you save that, and, and then you record it live. So you can you can effectively do a very very close, um, or certainly I can in terms of the you know, the, the keyboard side of stuff. I can create um, very very accurate sounds. Uh, uh, that we used on uh, on certain recordings, even going back to stuff I've not played on, such as the uh, some of the um, earlier Yes stuff. You know, it it's 
uh, it, it's a challenge to get the, the same um, sounds and mellotrons and that sort of thing that, that were around at the time, but um, there is the technology out there that, that, that you can do it, so it's just a case of digging for it and, uh, and then taking it out. So live, it's a very, very useful tool to be um, at your disposal. I never meant to be so bad to you One thing I said that I would never do A look from you and I would fall from grace And that would wipe the smile right from my face Do you remember when we used to dance And incidents arose from circumstance One thing led to another Obviously, when I, in 1981, when I was 11, uh, you were the first face I saw on, on MTV and, and then later with Asia. And I remember looking at you and thinking, you know, even as a young guy, I was thinking, that guy looks comfortable uh, behind the boards. Like, you, you're a guy who always seemed like you knew where you wanted to be. Where, at what point did you self-identify with, you know, being a keyboardist, you know, being behind the boards like that instead of another instrument? When did that happen for you? Did it happen early on? Yeah, it happened early on, probably when I was about 12 or 13. And, um, you know, I, I started to see um, keyboards were starting to become more apparent in modern music and certain parts of, of rock. Um, the keyboard was starting to feature quite a bit, even going back to stuff like the animals, and, uh, you know, the, the, the solo in the middle of the house, the rising sun was a uh, Barclays or organ or something like that. So, you know, 
the keyboard player, instead of being just a guy that was sat at the back in a, in a, in a jazz band or big band or something like that, all of a sudden was starting to become uh, part of the furniture of, uh, uh, of pop music and the fabric of pop music. And I think that um, that was really starting to develop around that time. And I got really, I was really interested in that. And, and uh, because I'd been, you know, we played my parents for music or my dad was a church organist, so I'd been brought up on uh, playing the piano and the organ. Um, this was a, a moment that I thought, well, you know, this, this is probably, you know, if I can do this for the rest of my life, I'd be very happy. Yeah. And so uh, I got myself a, a little organ, um, or my, my mum bought it for me, a little organ, uh, and I started to play in little bands that were around doing soul music and covers, and um, uh, and then the, the the underground music explosion started, or they called it underground at the time, and, uh, you know, bands like Poco Haram and, uh, and uh, Caravan and people like that were coming up, and, and the, the Vision and, and the Nice, people like that, Keith Emerson, um, you know, these bands were coming through towards the end of the 60s in, in King Crimson, uh, and, you know, this was a very, very keyboard-dominated sound, and, um, and so I, I, I graduated into that way of thinking that, you know, this was really what I wanted to do, was, was be the keyboard player in the, in the band, uh, but not just be a guy that sat down at the back, but to be more of a prominent role, and I think that, you know, seeing those players come through, uh, that's what really sparked me on to, to do what I do today. You know, I knew that I was never going to be a concert pianist, so, um, you know, this was a, a, another way of approaching keyboard playing, and, uh, and I was fortunate when I was about... Uh, 19, I got into a music college, which was not just a music college that dealt with the classical music, but also um, was the first uh, college in the UK that actually did modern music as a, as, a, as, a, as a main focus. So instead of listening to you know, Mozart and, uh, and Rachmaninoff and people like that, I was listening to Chick Corea and, and studying people like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock and... Uh, uh, and that side of it. So, you know, it was very, very interesting for me to be able to be at a, a music college but not be focused exclusively on classical music, but, um, you know, look at this whole area of modern music that, that uh, you know, that I was so interested in. You know, I think of you as a, as a modern classical musician, but I'm curious to know why you felt you weren't going to be a concert pianist. Um, I think that you you have to show a very very um, extraordinary technique at, at, at a young age, and I didn't really have that. So, um, yeah, I knew there were much better people who were probably streets ahead of me in terms of uh, you know, not just uh, in the future, but at that age. So, um, but also I think it was it was down to my musical taste. You know, I. I, I I liked a, a, an area of classical music, but at the same time, you know, I was uh, I was pretty pretty fascinated with all this stuff that was going on, uh, you know, in, in the modern music scene. What was your take on guys like Steve Winwood? Uh, Steve Winwood was um, a great, you know, a great player. I think I think obviously known more for his his um, his vocals than his keyboard playing, but um, uh, certainly. You know, he was uh, he was up there as a keyboard player, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, but, but as I say, I think the fact that he was such a strong singer, uh, he, his focus was, was going to be a lot more on that rather than his uh, keyboard playing. Yeah, I heard. Um, I always thought of him as a as a singer first, but I, I heard Billy Joel saying that that Steve Winwood is the one guy who would intimidate him, um, you know, based on his prowess on the on the keyboard. Um, and I went back yeah. and sort of reevaluated his work. He is pretty dazzling. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, you, I don't know if he played uh, the the organ part in um, Spencer Davis. Keep on running. He may well have done. Um, but he was very young though. I mean, he was only like fifteen or sixteen when he was right. in uh, Spencer Davis group. So, uh, so yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd never, I'd never actually put him forward as being one of the people that really influenced me. 
I think the, the, the real light bulb moment was when I saw Keith Emerson for the Knights at the Isle of Wight Festival from 1968. And, um, and he just blew me away because he was really, he was taking keyboard playing to an ultimate extreme there where he's riding the hammock organ around the stage. Uh, it was very, very fully on keyboard driven band of Dice. Uh, and uh, I think that that, you know, in, in an instrumental style, you know, the, the actual vocal side of things was almost immaterial uh, in that band. It was all about, it was all about Keith Emerson. And, uh, uh, you know, when I saw him at the Isle of Wight Festival, I thought, wow, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. You know? So you never had the inclination to want to step up to the mic and be the front man. You always liked that role. Yeah, I did always like that role. I, I think that, um, uh, I, I don't, I didn't think I was going to be a good enough singer anyway. You know, I think sometimes you've got to look at yourself and say, you know, I can do this, but I can't do that. And, um, and, and then, you know, you can focus your stuff on the stuff that you, you, you think you can do. And, uh, it's doable. And I thought, you know, if I'm a keyboard player, I know that that's doable. I know I can, you know, I can make some mark on on, uh, on people with that uh, approach. You know, I always wanted to interview John, and I didn't get the chance to. Can Can you just tell me a little bit about what made him so special as a musician? Well, John was an incredible music. Um, had an incredible musical mind, and that he had a very similar background to the one that I had, which was singing in choirs and being brought up on. Uh, English church music, uh, and we were both from, you know, from the north and midlands of, uh, of, of England. We were not, we were not sort of part of the London scene, and, and so we both had similar ways of. of I mean, he was around you know, before I was, obviously, but uh, uh, on the scene. But um, uh, we had similar visions, I think. And then when we, when we were fortunate enough to meet up with. And start Asia together. Uh, I think we really clicked as writers because we had that un- underlying understanding of of how we put stuff together. And uh, uh, and, and he was just uh, a great vision of music. I think that um, uh, he was a huge influence on me. Um, you know, we got along really well. And, you know, even up to the end, we were, we were writing stuff together. So. Um, it's you know a real real sadness that that um, he's not he's not there anymore. We're not going to write together again. But uh, I've only got great memories of the stuff we wrote, and I think that uh, you know we we influenced a lot of people along the way with our with our songs. I thought John was a terrific singer. I think he's an absolutely brilliant singer. It's funny if I wasn't so sure when I first started working with him because when when we first put Asia together. Um, John was just sort of ghosting some of the vocals because we were originally looking for uh, it was going to be modeled more on the yes format of where you had this, this you know a lone lead singer uh, and, and the four of us were with uh, Carl, Steve, uh, John, and myself with the four guys you know behind that like like the yes template really. Um, but as, as time went by, we we had a few auditions and the record label over in, uh, in the states brought over. Uh, various people for us to attempt to work with. Um, uh, it just became more and more apparent that John, John was the sound of the band because he, you know, every time we'd be rehearsing together, he was taking the lead part. Even if the lyrics weren't fully established or whatever. So, um, but I think it really came together in the studio on that first album when, uh, when we started to mount and there the voices and John's voice stood out. And mine was just uh, it was absolutely wonderful, you know. And um, you know, even up until the last tour that we did together, which was uh, the Gravitas tour 2014, you know, his voice was holding up incredibly well. He was singing, he was singing better than ever, I think, at that at that point. I remember even even from you know the heat of the moment is is the only is the first song and maybe the only song to actually. Uh, pre-sage tweeting. I mean, I think that the and now you find yourself in '82 is like live tweeting. I mean, it, it felt it just felt so current, like it was happening before your very eyes. And I remember being dazzled by 
by John's lyrics, I think there he's a very underrated lyricist as well. I think that's a good point because um, uh, you know some of the stuff, some of the lines in the songs. Uh, you know, when we did our Icon project together, we we did four albums uh, together, which was a our sort of side project to Asia, uh, which was starting around two thousand and four, two thousand and five. Um, some of the lyrics on those songs are absolutely incredible, and uh, you know he he had a way of working with words uh, in a very intelligent manner, um, without having any sort of no 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 political bias or or, or sentiment. You know these these were uh, and weren't too abstract either. The, the lyrics that, that could appeal to to virtually everybody. You know, and I think that that's. The, the beauty of, of, uh, of a great writer, you know, and some of Lars John definitely was. And it was a joy for me to actually be working with him and provide some of the musical ideas that he could work with and the top line melodies that that he, he he would immediately be able to craft those lyrics into. Yeah, he had a sort of poetic economy that is really rare. Mm. Very rare. And somebody pointed out that um, the the lyric to heat of the moment is actually um written in an iambic pentameter which was the mm. the, the, the uh shakespeare and people like that wrote their sonnets in uh, and uh, i'd never i never realized that before and then a, a few weeks ago someone pointed this out and uh and as a fascinating i looked through it i read the the, the meter of the lyrics and it's exactly that and it, it's you know there's things like that you you know, just um, undiscovered, and that a lot of people don't realise at the time, and, and that you know, that may be one of the reasons why it's, it's subliminally attractive to people. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, or why you can't get those songs out of your head? They're so rhythmic. Yeah. Yes, exactly, and I think that uh, you know, he, being a bass player as well, he had that vision of um, uh, you know of, of what what kind of works, not not just. Um, um, rhythmically but melodically as well and so um you know and uh, you look at an artist like sting for instance i think sting has got that aspect to him as well where he has that you know the rhythmic delivery of the voice it's not it's not sort of blues based or or, or jazz based or anything like that it's got this sort of um almost classical approach to to the meter and the, and the timing of the melody and everything like that and and so you know, it's it's a very rare gift, and I think that um, that uh, you know John John had that gift, and, uh, uh, and you know not is not that common, put it that way. No, well, I always I always like Carl Palmer because I he looked so athletic as a as a drummer. Can, can you describe him as a player? <clears throat> oh, Carl's um, Carl's a machine. You know, I think he's uh, he's an incredible player, and. Uh, um, we were very lucky, very lucky to be associated with someone as powerful as that. You know, he, he never seems to have lost any power at all. And, uh, and actually, I remember seeing Emerson, Lake and Palmer when they first formed, because also at the Isle of Wight Festival. Um, and, uh, you know, I was blown away by... They just seemed so much heavier and more powerful than any other band there. You know, they were, they, they were just as full on. And I think that... Um, you know, Carl's got, got an amazing technique as well. So, uh, you know, you, you put these people together and, you, you, you know, you can end up with a very, very uh, uh, unique and, and, and powerful sound. I'm wondering how the live experience is for you now. Is it is it as fresh as ever? Do you love it as much as you always have? Yeah, you know, you, you, you get times when it's, um, you know, some of the gigs seem a bit flat and you don't really don't really get into it 100% but there are occasions when you feel like you're riding on a magic carpet because the you know, the band is absolutely perfectly honed and it's it's uh, you know it's sounding great and it carries you to another level and uh, you know that's a it's an incredible moment when that happens because uh, that you know you know that you if you're you're feeling like that then you know, the audience is going to be feeling like that as well. So that's a great, it's a great moment when that happens. And in terms of the future, would you uh, work with Trevor again? Like, do you have any uh, projects that are upcoming that are you're kind of excited about? 
Yeah, I, I, I speak to Trevor quite frequently from time to time. We've never really, well, we, we lost touch for a while in the 80s, but um, uh, I think that, um, you know, in more recent years, we've had a lot more contact together. And uh, uh, we've done a little bit of writing here and there, nothing nothing major, but um, uh, I think that we're looking at revisiting some of the, um, some of the ideas that we had uh, even going back to the uh, 70s and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's always, on his, it's always on his mind, it's always on my mind that one day we will do something. Uh, he's out there at the moment doing his, um, his solo shows. Right. Um, with, uh, with the Trevor Horn Band. Well, he plays with quite a bit of Buggles and some Yes stuff as well. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we've talked about maybe going out later this year as a, as a just doing some, uh, you know, a few one-offs here and there. But um, uh, at the moment, it's, it's, it's sort of um, bubbles under the surface, I think, with the bubbles at the moment. We, we, do, we do get together sometimes and put some bits of bubbles together. A sweet and thoughtful guy, that Jeff Downs. I enjoyed that conversation. And look, I know that Jeff Downs is one of the greatest musicians of all time. And I know he's up on all the latest technology, but it did sound to me uh, like he was using a phone from 1981. But you know what? We're going to look past it because uh, his contribution uh, to music is so massive. Who cares about what phone Jeff Downs is using? I mean, do we really care? We could hear him, right? Uh, listen, if you want to hear him live, go see Yes while you can. Uh, the tour is about to wind up on the 28th. The month in question is July. That date is in Saratoga. I'm sure there will be others. If you want information, go to yesworld.com. That is their website. Also, go to jeffdowns.com. That's Jeff with a G, my friends. Everything you want to know about Jeff Downs is on that site. Everything you want to know about me and probably way more is on my site, alexgreenonline.com. Pay that a visit. Also, find me online via the very popular Twitter uh, site, at Ember's Editor, or find me on Instagram, Ember's Podcast. What else? What else? Oh, yeah, you can email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. And please subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, wherever you get podcasts. You'll find us, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and now we are on iHeartRadio. So wherever your preference is to uh, listen to these things, uh, please subscribe and uh, give us a rating. Leave a nice comment. We thank you in advance. And, of course, thank you, as always, for your continued support of the show. Let's close things off with a song from the Yes album, Heaven and Earth, featuring Jeff Downs. This is In a World of Our Own. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. What's wrong with the new revolution? Who's playing God?